wherever you find yourself today, know that we're glad you're with us. Uh, we're going we're gonna to jump right in today, uh, today, today's sermon in the book of Mark. It's a bit of a sandwich, actually. Bet you didn't see that coming. Uh, I don't know if you knew this or not, but Mark is actually a sandwich guy. You know, if uh, he would probably have, would have been a Jimmy John's regular. He probably was on the Subway diet. He probably liked Jersey Mike's deliveries. Uh, if he lived here in Tampa, he probably would have frequented the Ruben Cuban or Bricado's sandwich shop. I bring, that, I bring this up because he was regularly using sandwiches as a teaching tool. Not, not actual sandwiches that we eat, although uh, he did multiply fish sandwiches twice in the book of Mark. Uh, no, Mark sandwiches were a common teaching, teaching tool that he used. And today's passage is one of those sandwiches where he would illustrate something. It's that first piece of bread. Something else would, something else would come up. Something different would happen. It's the inside of the sandwich. And then uh, he would come back to the illustration, that last piece of bread. And today's sandwich... I guess we could call it a spicy fig sandwich because it involves a fig tree with some extra spice in the middle. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Uh, We're going to be in a very interesting story, a story that has caused problems for some uh, because it involves Jesus cursing a tree and overturning tables, which doesn't seem like a very nice thing for Jesus to do. You know, when you, when you first read it, it feels a bit shocking. You know, at the surface, it seems like Jesus just walks up to this fig tree uh, and, curses, and curses the tree. Goes off on a few people in the temple, uh, makes a scene, and then he comes back about 24 hours later and the tree is dead. Uh, that's our spicy sandwich for today. Illustrated by a cursed fig tree. For those uh, that lack a green thumb... Uh, you may appreciate this story moving forward. Maybe every time your plants die, you should remember this story. For others, as I've said, this story has caused problems because it's not the nice, neat, clean-cut Jesus they'd expect. Cursing a fig tree and overturning tables, that doesn't seem very nice and polite. But what we need to understand about Jesus is that Jesus is not just a nice, polite, gentle lamb. Jesus is also a fierce, roaring lion. And today we see more of the roaring lion side of Jesus. And so with that being said, we'll soon see that today's lesson is not a horticulture lesson or a lesson on cursing or some sort of wizardry. No, it's, it's very different than that. Our main idea today is Jesus came to overturn the false appearance of fruit and then also produce true fruit. In today's story, it's multifaceted. You know, it's a parable. It's it's something that I've really, it's a parable I've really wrestled with uh, this week because, you know, I've often heard these two stories, uh, our sandwich, you know, I've I've heard them taught in isolation. Uh, I know the story of the withering fig tree and the story of Jesus overturning tables in the temple, but but I don't, I, I don't typically think of them together. You know, and this week I've really wrestled to connect some of these dots, some that I, some that I think are, are pretty simple, uh, but some not. And so I hope you can follow with me today and as we try, try to tie it all together. You know, on one side uh, in today's story, we'll see a level of hypocrisy, doing religious activity, putting on a show, uh, but with the wrong heart posture. Without any, without any real spiritual fruit, uh, there's, there's the appearance of fruit, but in actuality, it's just a mirage. It's something that uh, it's, it's, you think there's fruit there, but there's, there's actually no fruit at all. And then on the other side, we'll see the, the results of real and true fruit. 
And so in our passage, Jesus is using a withering fig tree to illustrate these two contrasting ideas, these two opposing ideas. And using this as our guide today, we're going to see that number one, the appearance of fruit, versus number two, true fruit. At the end of our time, we'll see a few specific examples of, of, of true fruit. You know, I, I found the timing of this passage interesting because on one side, uh, the, first, the first thing this story is dealing with is the hypocrisy of showy religion. You know, religious activity with wrong motives, using religion to take advantage of people uh, for gain. You know, I found this interesting because the typical ways we would address showy uh, hypocritical religion in some ways has been completely removed over, uh, from us over the past few months because our public religious activities has come to a, cre- a screeching halt uh, or has been limited, you know, although it can still show up in some ways. But as I've thought about this, I think this story is still pretty relevant because uh, we're forced to inspect our tree, so to speak, you know, inspect our lives, inspect our church for real true fruit. You know, I hope this will be encouraging for us today, uh, and I hope it's going to pr- push us towards fruitfulness in our lives. So if you have your Bibles, uh, look with me starting in uh, verse 12 of chapter 11 in the book of Mark. This is what it says. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again and his disciples heard it. So here we have the curse, uh, Jesus' judgment against a fig tree. Now, I've always liked fig trees for whatever reason. I actually find the fruit pretty tasty uh, against popular demand or a popular opinion. But, you know, my, my dad had one in his yard, uh, and, and just, I just have found them fascinating. And Jesus walks up to one of these trees, the fig tree, and he doesn't find any fruit on the tree. Even the little buds of fruit that kind of come up before uh, the fig season, he didn't find any of that either. It's, it's, it's just a tree in leaf without any signs of fruit. This tree looked healthy. It gave the appearance of having fruit from a distance. But when Jesus inspected it, when he walked up to it, there was no fruit. And then Jesus just gives it a death sentence. So what's helpful to know, though, in this instance, is that fig trees... In the Old Testament, uh, they were often used as a metaphor for God's people, for for Israel. Uh, They were used as a metaphor for Israel standing before God. And in this scene, we see Jesus come in and he curses this fig tree. And then, after Jesus curses the tree, the scene abruptly changes to to, to the spicy part of our fig sandwich. Look at me starting in verse 15. This is what it says, And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he told, uh, and he he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, it is not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. You know, I've always found this part of the Bible very intriguing, uh, because Jesus is walking into a temple. It's a very large, uh, beautiful temple. And I just, ima- just imagine uh, five football fields wide and three football fields long. It was a 35-acre courtyard with marble-paved uh, uh, ground. 
And at this time, there were large crowds there for the Passover. And this isn't a small temple or a little church courtyard type thing. This was a big event with lots of people. And all these people were walking around the temple because, uh, because of the Passover event. And, they, and these people, they knew, they knew basic economics of supply and demand. There's hundreds of thousands of people. People from all over were coming in and they needed to exchange their money so they could buy pigeons to sacrifice, probably along with other items like oils and lambs and salt for the Passover event. You know, just to give you an idea of how many people were at this, at something like this during this time, years later, you know, after this event, in 66 AD, when the temple was finally completed, one source said over 255,000 lambs were sacrificed for Passover. And typically, there was one lamb per family. So there's a lot of people here, right? With all, with all this heavy foot tra- traffic, with people that wanted to make sacrifices, you know, I think we can agree that it calls for a high demand. This was a great business opportunity. The temple was still being built at this time, and so possibly this was seen as a way for people to uh, potentially uh, fund the temple, how to build the temple. So, you know, they, they set up shop. You know, I imagine this being something like a, like a farmer's market or possibly even fair-like, calling out all the best deals on pigeons and lambs. Maybe even trying to get people to lure, uh, lure them into their booths Uh, And then what's intriguing to me is Jesus walks in. He sees all of it with thousands of people around in this massive open area of the temple. And Jesus, the man uh, that has healed the sick, the lame, the blind, the man that has walked on water, the man that has fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two bread, he comes into this temple and he just goes off on these people. He wrecks havoc on them. Verse 15 says he was driving people out, overturning tables and seats. Verse 16 says he was stopping people from carrying things through the temple. Jesus is clearly angry. angry. He's not putting up with this. He's making a statement. In verse 17, it says he was teaching them that his house, the temple, was to be a house of prayer for the nations, not a den of robbers. Jesus is essentially calling them prayerless thieves. And then in verse 18, you know, we see these big dogs come in, the scribes and the chief, the chief priests, and they hear what he said. And it says they were seeking to destroy him. And then it says they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then in verse 19, he just walks off the scene. He just leaves. It says when evening comes, it says they, they just they leave the city. It's a bit of a mic drop. Y'all, Jesus is not playing around. This is the fierce warrior side of Jesus coming out. Jesus is often referred to as a lamb, but not here. This is not Jesus' version of Mary had a little lamb, right? No, he's showing his fierceness and anger. He's showing himself as one who can pronounce judgment and wrath. Jesus is showing his anger towards our first point, which is number one, the appearance of fruit. On the surface, it looks like fruit, They're in the temple trying to help people make sacrifice for a religious event, for the Passover event. They're in the temple and it seems like they're trying to help people. And just like Jesus' illustration with the fig tree, it gives the appearance of fruit, but there's no fruit. It's fruitless, so to speak. They were doing a lot of religious activity, but Jesus knew their hearts. When he looked around, he saw past all of their activities and he saw their intentions. He saw what was inside their hearts. Just think about this. These people were completely disregarding the sacredness of the temple. They claimed to love God, but yet uh, they did not respect the things that he loves. 
The temple was a place of worship. Uh, It was a house of prayer for the nations where people would come in and cry out to God. People from all over would come in and worship the Lord. However, instead of worshiping God in the temple, they were worshiping for their own gain. They were uh, making financial gains under the mirage of spirituality. At the root of their hypocrisy was self-worship. They weren't interested in elevating God in the temple. They were interested in elevating themselves. Just think about the picture we see in Isaiah chapter 6 of what worship in the temple should have looked like. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see a picture of the Lord sitting on the throne where his robe, it's filling the temple where angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts and the whole earth is full of its glory. And the foundation of the temple, it's, it's shaking and trembling in the Lord's presence. It says the house was filled with smoke. And so what was Isaiah's response to this when he sees God's glory? Was it, you know, maybe I should sell a, a few pigeons and make a dollar or two, you know? Or, or maybe was it, you know, I think people would really love to see this. Maybe we could make a, uh, this would be a good business opportunity. No, that's not what he did. Isaiah fell down on his face and said, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips. For my eye have seen the, seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Being in the temple led Isaiah to see God's glory. It led him to see the horrid nature of his sin. It led him to seek repentance and to seek repent, uh, forgiveness of sin. And then we see what God says next in Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah. He says, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And Isaiah says back to him, he says, here am I, send me. Isaiah's response in the temple and under the presence of God in the temple, it led him to repentance, it led him to worship, and it led him to obedience. And yet, when Jesus walks into the temple, what he saw, it was far from that. It was far from that. When Jesus walks into the temple, he begins overturning tables and seats and driving people out. This is the righteousness of God on display that is seeking to lead people to repentance. Jesus is putting on displays God's righteousness that should have led people in the temple to fall down on their faces and say, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. But it didn't because of their hypocrisy, because their hearts were far from God. They were fruitless. Spiritual hypocrisy is nothing more than an outward display of elevating ourselves to the place where only God deserves to be. We may not be selling things in a temple for our own gain, but every day we are certainly tempted to seek our own gain, masked in the mirage of spirituality. Here are a few examples of what this may look like or sound like for us today. Maybe you've heard someone say this. You know, I know God will forgive me. I'll seek repentance after I sin uh, because I know God still loves me. Uh, but the harsh reality is justifying our sin under the language of grace is a glaring sign of a heart that is far from the presence of God. Here's another one. Maybe we're, maybe we're good at pointing out other sin, but we fail to see our own sin. That's just marriage counseling 101 right there. Uh, or on the other side, maybe someone is calling out our sin in love graciously, and yet we struggle to receive it and ignore it. Because, because maybe they've wronged us in some way. You know, hypocrisy in the church or in our lives, it can be very destructive. Uh, it can be very subtle and destructive. It's, it's, it's a lot like a dripping leak, you know, that happens slowly, but it slowly destroys. Just like Jesus did in this story, 
Uh, He wants to come in our lives and he wants to overturn every area of deceit and hypocrisy and sin in our life. Jesus wants to come in and overturn anything that is keeping us from worshiping the Lord from true worship. Jesus wants to overturn anything that distracts us from producing real and true fruit. And so here, we know that Jesus came in overturning tables and chairs. Not to be mean, but to take righteous and just actions to turn their hearts back to worshiping the Lord in the temple. But as we see, it did not work. Instead of turning back to the Lord in worship, they turned against the Lord, seeking to destroy him, as it says in verse 18. And as we know, when someone turns their heart back against the Lord, ignoring repentance, we know that it doesn't end well, which is what Jesus illustrates with the fig tree in verses 20 and 21, which says this, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And as we saw a few verses earlier, uh, Jesus saw a tree that looked great from a distance, but then when he inspected it closely, it was fruitless. It wasn't any good. And then uh, Jesus goes into the temple and inspects it, it too. It, the, the, the temple then, it was fruitless. It appeared great. They were building a great, large, beautiful temple, but it was fruitless. And then they walk out. And 24 hours later, they see that once beautiful, fruitless tree completely withered and dead. And it's used and seen as a stark warning. We could say it this way. Jesus withered a fig tree as a warning to withering souls. Jesus withered a fig tree as a visible picture for the disciples of what happens with misguided faith, what happens with hypocritical, fruitless, and false faith. Those in the temple had more faith in their business plan than they had in God. It was misguided faith. Their faith was more in their activity for God and not God himself. If their faith was truly in God, they would have been led to seek repentance in the temple. They would have been led to prayer and worship and not led towards personal gain. New City Church, this is a call for us to seek the warning of the withering tree, to inspect our hearts, to search our hearts for hypocrisy, for idolatry, to inspect our hearts of sin and seek the face of Jesus. And we come face to face with Jesus. When we look at the gospel and see the cross and see the sin that bore Jesus on the cross, knowing that Jesus rose from the dead, knowing that Jesus defeated sin and death and knowing that he is not dead but alive and with us, this should lead us to, uh, to, to repentance and it should lead us to worship and obedience. Catch, catch this, don't miss this. Just, just follow me here for a second. When we look at this story and how Jesus walks into the temple and how he wrecks havoc in the temple to cleanse the temple temple of sin and hypocrisy and fruitlessness. When we read that, and then we pair that reality up with what we now know of how Jesus actually comes inside of us and makes our hearts his temple, the truth that we now know today is that there's no longer a need for the temple. Our hearts are now God's temple. And Jesus After Jesus rose from the dead, God saw it fit to take his spirit and make our hearts his home. God no longer dwells in the temple. He dwells in our hearts. As Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, he says, you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells inside you. And then later in 2 Corinthians 6.16, Paul says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we 
are the temple of the living God. When we see Jesus face to face, when we see the glory of God in the gospel, this should lead us to overturn the hypocrisy in our hearts. When we see the goodness of God and the kindness of God in the gospel, it should lead us to repentance if our hearts are now God's temple. Just like we see in this story, God's temple has no room for hypocrisy. Jesus came to overturn the hypocrisy in our hearts. And if sin and hypocrisy are in God's temple, our hearts, Jesus wants to come in and wreak havoc on them. He wants to overturn it and and stop other idols from coming through. And this is not mean or wrong. This is God's kindness. Because Jesus knows what true temple worship should look like, should be. Jesus has seen true temple worship. He's seen the proper response of Isaiah falling on his face, worshiping the Lord, saying, woe is me, and then fearlessly release into God's mission and obedience. God knows that anything that hinders our hearts from seeing God in his full glory, it needs to be removed because he knows that great fruit can come from it. When we remove these things out of our heart, when we, when, we, when, when we seek to destroy the idols and hypocrisy in the temple of our hearts, when we seek repentance, God starts to, to produce real fruit in our lives, which is what, God, was what we see contrasted here, starting in verses 22. This is what it says, and Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. As we've said, uh, Jesus was using the withering tree as a warning. The activity that was going on in God's temple, it was not acceptable. God's temple was meant for worship and prayer, but they were using it as a den of robbers for their own gain. And then the very first thing Jesus says after Jesus cleanses, clears the temple, and after Peter notices the withered fig tree, Jesus says to them in verse 22, he says, have faith in God. And at first, I think it seems a bit strange. You know, I I really wrestled with this for a bit this week. Uh, With the withering tree, I think it makes sense in relation to what happens in the temple, but why Jesus followed it up with this next section, it just seems strange to me. It it just, I just, I I wrestled with it, but, but think about it. They're sitting there looking at the withered tree. Jesus just witnessed, we just witnessed Jesus wreak havoc in the temple. And then Jesus says, have faith in God. Have, have faith that can move a mountain. It's kind of like, yeah, okay, I, I get that. Um, but what, this, what about the tree that you just cursed, right? Uh, can you please explain what just happened back there in the temple? Uh, you would think he would follow up showing and explaining the warning of the tree in the temple. But that's not what he did. He followed up with the saying, have faith in God. And it goes on to a section on faith and prayer and forgiveness, which is great. But at first glance, it's it's not what we would expect him to say. You know, it seems like a pretty hard turn, like after to kind of finish off this second half of the illustration, the sandwich that he's getting at. But what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is contrasting the fruitlessness of the tree and the temple with a picture of true fruit. As Mark typically does, he doesn't tell us, he just shows us. He's painting a picture for us. He's showing them 
Do you see that temple, the warning of the temple? He's essentially saying, don't, don't pursue that. That's a warning. Don't do that. But instead, pursue this. Pursue this teaching. Here we see the contrast of the fruitless temple seeing a picture of number two, true fruit. This is what should have been found in the temple. And I don't think it's an accident that the very first thing he says is have faith in God. It's, it's yet another reminder that our faith in God is of utmost importance. And so my plea to you is Jesus' plea to you. And it's if you have not trusted in Christ that you would simply have faith in God to put your faith in Jesus. Don't settle for hypocritical, false faith, fruitless faith that is built on anything other than Jesus. Have true, real, lasting faith in Jesus. And I plead with you that you would trust in Jesus for many reasons. But there's two specific reasons that I think uh, that I want to give you today. And the first one is the warning in this text. That without faith in Jesus, like the tree, it leads to an eternal withering. Without faith in Jesus, the ending is not good. So I plead with you, heed the warning we see today and put your faith in Jesus. Trust in Jesus today. But as we'll see, there's more than just a warning. With faith, there is also a great reward. There's great fruit and blessing that come with true faith in Jesus. And as we'll see, there are certain fruits that come with with true, real faith. These, these fruits are an evidence of faith, and they're, and they're in a blessing of faith. The fruits we see in our passage today are the power of faith, prayer, and forgiveness. I'll say it again. Right? True fruit is seen in the power of faith, prayer, and forgiveness. We see the, we see the first two uh, coupled together. We see the power of faith and prayer in verses 24 and 25, and then forgiveness in verses 26. You know, as I've said, these are the things that Jesus, that he should have witnessed when he walked into the temple. Uh, people in prayer crying out to God, people seeking forgiveness from both God and others, people praying for the sake of others to have forgiveness, praying for the sake of the nations, but he didn't. They, were, they weren't praying to God, they were praying on each other. They weren't seeking forgiveness, they were seeking their own gain. And Jesus comes in teaching them. And he says in verses 23 and 24, I want to read it again. This is, this is what it says in verses 23 and 24. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. I want to go ahead and say, uh, these are some great, powerful, uh, difficult, and a bit tricky verses. Um, you know, I want to I want to sidestep here for a second and, and slow down and explain kind of what's going on uh, because uh, kind of explaining the tension because there is a little bit of tension. You know, just try to follow me here for a few minutes because on one side uh, we know that we know that God is not a genie in a bottle. He doesn't answer every prayer we ask. We reject name it and claim it theology. The idea that if the amount of faith is enough, we can have whatever we want. You know, we, we can be rich, uh, not have any trouble, that if we believe and pray hard enough, God will bless all of our elf efforts, uh, which we know that's not true. God is not a genie. He doesn't give us whatever we want. But the tension here is it seems like these verses are saying exactly that. Verse 24 literally says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Right? This, is, this is the exact anchor verse for a name it and claim it theology. And so uh, we need to ask, what does this mean? Like, does this mean if I, if I want to ask, I want to ask for a million dollars, so uh, I believe, I believe, I believe, uh, now I can have it according to the Bible, which should be mine, 
right? No, absolutely not. That goes against the rest of the Bible. In fact, uh, we see Jesus asked God in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, yeah, Jesus asked God he's, to remove this cup from me and to not go to the cross. Jesus in Mark 14 said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. So uh, did Jesus himself not have enough faith? No, that's just silly. Why? Because he prayed correctly. He said, if it's your will, remove this cup. This is so important. When we come to verses like this, we have to interpret the Bible with the Bible. We can't build a theological system on one verse. And also, just to throw this out there, uh, these verses are often, are often, often incorrectly used as a means to why God didn't answer uh, a specific prayer, like healing someone or, or overcoming sin, saying things like, you know, if you, just, if you just had enough faith, God would have healed them. That's just, that's just flat out wrong. We ask God in faith while also submitting to God's will. You know, something, something we need to understand to help us with these verses is that our faith, what we can't see, you know, along with our prayers, should be guided by what we know. Faith is trusting the things that are unseen. When we ask God in prayer and we ask God in faith, making petitions is asking God for the things that we can't see. But true faith is guided by what we already know. Our faith in what we can't see should always be guided by how God has already revealed himself in the Bible. God's word, God's word are the tracks that guide our faith. If we ask for something that goes against God's character or God's revealed will, then we don't have enough faith. It's weak faith. We can't ask God for what we want, but then doubt God for and how he's already revealed himself in his word. That's, that's weak faith. So that's why a name it and claim it theology doesn't work. Because often what we ask for goes against God's character. It goes against his revealed will, which is weak and doubting faith. But then on the other side, because of the danger of the false teaching in this passage, we sidestep these verses so much that they completely lose their weight. They become so caveated with a list of hundred different asterisks beside them that we may as well just not read it, you know, which is also not right. So uh, we're going to land somewhere in the middle. So here it is. Jesus says in verse 23, uh, th- this is my paraphrase, if, if you want to throw a mountain into the sea, if you don't doubt in your heart and believe, it will be done. What, what we know uh, is that what we, we, we don't have any record of disciples throwing mountains in the sea. Just, that we don't have any record of that. Uh, although if God wanted to do that, he could. I, I bet the disciples probably tried it a few times. Uh, but that wasn't Jesus's point. That's not what he was trying to emphasize. This was hyperbole. It was an overstatement, much like the camel going through the eye of a needle. Jesus was trying to emphasize praying for audacious, impossible things, that things that we should be begging God in prayer, believing in faith, that he can do something about it. Our faith should be stirred, that we should pray for the impossible, truly believing that it will be done, that it can be done. If it is God's will and it's for our good and God's glory, it will be done. As Andrew Murray has said, we have a God that delights in impossibilities. This is the point. And I want us to see in these verses This is the fruitful blessing that is contrasted with the fruitless, now withered fig tree. We have a God that wants to do things through us and for us that are seemingly impossible. We just need to ask him to do it, believing in faith that he will do it. Does this mean he's going to do everything we ask? 
No, only the things that are in accordance with his will. But even if he doesn't do it, it's fruit, it's a blessing, it's an act of worship that honors the Lord. It's a true, uh, it's, it's a fruit of faith. You know, one of the things we often say is that the object of our faith is more important than the amount of our faith, which is completely true, right? Jesus is the object of our faith. Uh, I, I don't want to minimize this. Jesus is of primary importance when it comes to our faith. But what this passage forces us to do is that when we look at the object of our faith, when we look to Jesus, the amount of our faith, the amount of our faith should rise. It should be stirred. Having great faith, audacious faith, believing in the power of prayer is a result. It's a a fruit of true faith. True faith, it grows. It builds. True faith leads us to ask for, for the impossible. The fruit of true faith is asking God for things that just seem silly and and impossible. Maybe something like moving a mountain while also submitting to the will of God. This has been something that's been so convicting for me this week, you know, causing me to think, what are the the things that I've just kind of written off, thinking that that's just not going to happen? Do you know the things that I've prayed for in regards to the coronavirus? Lord, give us the medicine. Help us develop a vaccine, you know, protect me from getting sick. Lord, get me out of this quarantine, right? Which are good things to pray for. But you, but you know what I'm embarrassed to say, that I haven't prayed for this past month. That, this, this passage has led me to start praying, God, eradicate the coronavirus off the face of the planet. God, I know that you're able to do it. Would you do it? God, if this is your will, would you bring it, bring, would, would you, would you, would you, would you ha- let it happen? Would you do it, God? He can do it. He may do it. He may not. It doesn't matter if he does it or not because it's the fruit of faith. It's pleasing to the Lord. My constant prayer for myself and for our church is that we would never grow, grow dull in our faith. That Jesus, as the object of our faith, the longer we look, him, the longer we look to Jesus, that it would stir us to mountain moving faith, to continually pray for the impossible, believing in faith that God wants to answer prayers that seem impossible. You know, this passage has caused me to think, and, and I hope it does for you too, what are the things that I have just written off? Thinking, oh, that's, that's not going to happen. You know, what major macro global things have we written off? Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe we never stop praying for God to end abortion, uh, to eradicate racism, to end poverty and global hunger, to destroy the sex slave industry, to eliminate pornography and strip clubs. Maybe we believe in faith that God can do these things. Some some God may do, and the rest he will do when he returns. And to that we say, Jesus, come. Come soon. But then, also we need to pray in faith that unreached people groups would be reached. That he would do the impossible with the unreached. We, We need to ask ourselves, which friend, which neighbor, which coworker or family member have we just written off where salvation and restoration, it just seems silly or impossible? You know, what sin habit have we just given up on? given into. May we not stop praying and believing in faith that God can do the impossible. May we continue to look to the object of our faith, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, so that the amount of our faith will continually rise. May we not trade fruitless religious activity for the fruit of mountain-moving faith. Okay, so we've, we've looked at verses 23 and 24, the, the fruit of prayer and faith. And I want to close out in the last five minutes here. By looking at our last verse, verse 25, this is what it says. And whenever you stand praying, 
Forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is the, this is the last fruit that Jesus brings up in, in contrast to the fruitless temple, the withered fig tree. Uh, when Jesus walked into the temple, he, he should have seen people forgiving each other, seeking forgiveness from God, but that's, that's not what he saw. They weren't seeking to gain forgiveness. They were seeking economic gain. And here, Jesus is closing out his teaching, uh, finishing off this sandwich, reminding us of the fruit of forgiveness, the importance of forgiveness in relationships, uh, forgiving others, which honestly, I think it, it, it kind of feels like another random afterthought, uh, kind of like, have great faith, and, and no, yeah, we should forgive too. Um, but, but I think God has reminded us this week that it's, it's, nothing is random. You know, I believe God uh, uses every single word and verse uh, intentionally. And so I want to try and connect some of these dots here as we close. There, you know, there are a few things in the Christian life that can, that can kill the fruit of faith, like a bitter heart. Bitterness in our hearts, the inability to forgive others can keep us from walking in faith, from the amount of our faith growing. You know, it can, it can keep us from asking God to do the impossible, and it keeps us from putting the gospel on display. Because at the very core of our faith, one of the major building blocks of our faith is that we have been forgiven by God. Our sins have been forgiven, and if we struggle to forgive, we're struggling to believe the foundation of the, of the Christian faith. If we struggle with the faith to offer forgiveness, why would we have mountain-moving faith? But you know what I also know? Sometimes what seems like the mountain in front of us, what seems to be impossible, what often requires bold, audacious, mountain-moving faith may actually be forgiving the person that has wronged us. I wouldn't be surprised if the mountain that needs to be moved in some of our hearts and lives is the mountain of forgiveness. You know, I, I bet forgiving the person in, that has wronged you may seem harder to pray for than some of the impossible things that we have listed off earlier, which is a great indicator of doubting faith. May we instead be barked by the mountain-moving faith it often takes to forgive. You know, God wants to come in our hearts and overturn bitterness and give us faith to forgive. The question we have to ask is, will we let God go to work on the temple of our hearts Something that we know to be true today, because of the gospel, is that God, through Jesus Christ, did what seemed impossible. He gives us the opportunity to move the mountain of our sin. We put our faith in Jesus. He gives us the opportunity of forgiveness. May we, in turn, forgive as Christ has forgiven us. But we need to know that it may require mountain-moving faith. This is the evidence of true fruit which is far different and far more God-honoring than just mere religious activity. I'm, I'm praying today that God may produce fruit in each of us as we go about our day. Let's pray. Father, we need you uh, to overturn hypocrisy and sin and idols in our lives. Father, we, we need you to come in and, and wreak havoc on our hearts, on the temple of our hearts. And Father, we pray that as you, uh, as you wreak havoc and, and, and rid our hearts of the evil inside of it, that you would in turn turn our hearts towards faith. 
that you would turn our hearts towards bold, audacious faith, uh, faith that, uh, mountain-moving faith. Father, that we would be able to forgive as you have forgiven us. Father, we, we need your help to forgive. Father, I pray if there's anybody listening that needs to forgive, Father, I pray and I, and I ask that you would allow them, uh, that you would work in their hearts, that you would give them the faith, that you would grant them the faith that they need to forgive uh, what is in front of them. Father, we love you and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.